Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard new intro music from Andy Georgieff, class of 2022. Today, we talk to Amanda LaMonica Weir, class of 2004, a nursing faculty at Rush University, and recently earning her doctor for nurse practice. Amanda will share with us how a study abroad program set her on the path to becoming a master teacher in the classroom and eventually in the wings of Rush Hospital in Chicago. Joining us today is Amanda LaMonica Weir from the class of 2004. Amanda, what do you do? Currently, I teach nursing at Rush University. Well, you didn't, you've always been kind of a teacher. And I was wondering if you can kind of walk us back, like, how did that journey begin? Where did you, uh, where did you go to school after we go? After we go, I went to Illinois Wesleyan. It's a small liberal arts school in Bloomington. A lot of people know about ISU and their kind of sister cities there. So it's the tiny school uh, next to ISU. Do you know that you were going to study education when you were at um, Wesleyan? I actually didn't study education when I was there. That's part of my journey that was a little bit <laughs> non-straight, a curvy journey, if you will. I went, I studied pre-med initially and Spanish because I knew I wanted to be involved in the medical field, but I also had an interest in a lot of different cultures. Um, and one of the ways to study that was through language for me. While you were at Wesleyan and you were in that program, did you get to do any travel? Yeah, so I actually changed my major after the first year, and I dropped the pre-med because I realized that I didn't want to necessarily be a medical doctor, and I pivoted to political science at that time, more international political science than, than U.S. political science, and as a part of my Spanish major, I was required actually to study abroad, so I studied abroad in Costa Rica for a term. What was your experience like in Costa Rica? Did, how long, you stayed, you said a semester and, and what kind of studies did you do while you were there? It was one of the best things I ever did and I highly recommend it to any student regardless of what you're studying. I lived with a host family. I didn't know anybody going there. The program that I went with actually pulled like about 30 students from all over the U.S. So none of them were from my college. So I was there with there was a group of 30 of us, like I said, from all over the country. Most people didn't know anybody else. We were placed in a host family situation, and it was just us within our host family. So it was a really immersive experience. I spoke Spanish all day because they didn't speak English, um, which is just the best way to learn a language. And then I attended the university there. So a couple of my classes were with 
only a few were with that cohort of Americans where we would study Spanish. But then the other classes, I was integrated with the Costa Rican students as well. So they were from a variety of topics. I studied, I had like a film course, a literature course, things like that. And so the main goal was just to reinforce the Spanish in all different avenues of learning. I'm wondering if you could articulate like how the learning curve of being immersed in the language and, 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 and how quickly did you feel that you were able to not only just be able to, you know, be conversational, but then that next level where you're able to kind of pick up on nuances and really feel that kind of next level of confidence. Um, what was, if you can maybe kind of describe like that kind of learning curve of like what it was like to be immersed in the language there. Yeah. Um, it's difficult. I won't lie. And I wouldn't want to deter anyone from studying abroad for that. I would say that in the beginning when we got there, we took a placement exam and that kind of determined how many classes we took with the other Costa Rican students and how many we took that were more catered to our ability being usually a native English speaker, we did have some people who were already bilingual going into the program. But for myself, um, I did have a fair amount of classes with Costa Ricans. And then again, like I said, I spoke with my family. It's a huge learning curve, although I had started learning Spanish maybe about eighth grade. And at that point, I was maybe six years in because that was my junior year of college. So four years of high school, two years of um two years of college coursework at that point, and then a little bit, like I said, in eighth grade. So I had a base, but at the same point, I had never been fully immersed. And so really, you learn a lot through um, listening at first. You start to catch on, and then you just make mistakes, and you and you laugh at yourself. There were several times where I just said hilarious things because I used words that just were not the words I meant to use and just laughing at myself and figuring out there was a time when I couldn't figure out which bus to take. And my host mom kind of figured it out because I would just walk home in the rain every day. (laughs) So because I couldn't understand her instructions on which bus to take. So I would that we ended up going to the bus station and she would go and walk with me and say, okay, can you take this bus? Yes or no. Can you take this bus? Yes or no. And we sat there for about 20 minutes as each type of bus passed. (laughs) So I would say that the learning curve was steep, but at the same time, people are so gracious um, and meet me and meet you where you're at when you're when you're learning. But when I came back, I definitely had this huge growth that happened within my speaking and listening abilities. When you were in Costa Rica, um, it's one of those countries I hear that it it's just has this unparalleled natural beauty. Uh, were you able to kind of do, take any like camping or kind of like uh, trips into nature? Yeah. And I'll date myself because um, when I was in Costa Rica, cell phones were a thing here, but they did not have kind of the computer element and cell phones for people who lived abroad were even more rare. So when we went there, we just lived off our Lonely Planet guidebook. And my friends and I, weekend-wise, we usually our courses were in the center of the, of the week. So we had longer weekends to travel throughout the country. But it was absolutely amazing. So each weekend, maybe every other weekend, we would go places. And at the time, Costa Rica hadn't had such a touristic 
boom as far as Americans going there. So it was pretty cheap. So I stayed in a hostel one time that was just a bunch of hammocks in a kind of open room that had, well, it was open to the outside that just had a roof on it. And it was like $5 a night. So we were able to go everywhere from the rainforest to the to the beach. And I think that really helped, not just as a tourist, but to really understand a country even better by looking at its its natural resources and, and those things that it has to offer any visitor or local. So you come back from Costa Rica. And um, so what happens uh, after that? So do, do you, uh, what was your then ultimately your degree at Wesleyan? My degree was in political science and it was in um, basically Spanish, but uh, Illinois Wesleyan called it Hispanic studies because it's more than just the study of language. Um, we really tried to do study of culture, the political systems in several countries there, etc. Um, and so, yeah, that was what my final degree was. So it's strange that I went into teaching them from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then how do you make the leap into teaching? Well, at the time, the natural... Um, the natural way to use a political science degree typically is to go to law school. And I do have a parent who is a lawyer. So I was encouraged to do that. But during college, I did several internships at different law firms. And I found out that that career trajectory just wasn't for me. Um, I needed to be around people a little bit more. And no matter how noble the legal cause, because I did have internships at some pretty cool firms, um, it just wasn't for me. So at that point, I had done another internship teaching Spanish, um, but I obviously didn't have any type of degree to teach here in the States. So what I decided to do was to make myself a second study abroad <laughs> and go and live in Spain and teach English there um, and just have some kind of a gap year. Where were you? Like what what parts? I um, went to Barcelona and I ended up taking a three-week course that just gives you a certification to teach English. And it worked out really well because a lot of the grammar, you know, of course you're a native English speaker, but the grammar and learning a second language, like I had learned Spanish, it it really resonated and was able. I was able to translate those skills to teaching English to kind of understand where someone would be coming from learning a foreign language. So I took that course and then I got a job teaching at an after school program. Um, and, and it wasn't all kids. It was, it started about like three o'clock and each hour kind of progressed in age. So I taught um, little kids. They were maybe like seven to 10. And then I had teenagers after that for an hour. And then I taught adults. So I stayed over there for about six months and taught at that after school program. Okay, so now you come back to the United States, and then how did you find your way into um, uh, Chicago Public Schools? Yeah, so I, during kind of that end of any of my degree, my undergraduate degree, I had been thinking that I wanted to go into teaching, and I was thinking about how to do that because I, I didn't have an education degree. Um, so I was looking into alternative programs. You can go back to grad school and get a certificate to teach, but I wanted to see if there was a way to do that and get 
um, that certificate. So Teach for America is one has like one of those options. So a lot of people that go into Teach for America didn't necessarily study education, but they end up teaching whatever their specialty was. So for me, I had majored in Spanish. So I had the amount of credits that a Spanish teacher would need in order to teach Spanish. And then at the same time, you're able to go get that certificate and master's degree in order to teach. So I applied to Teach for America and was able, I was admitted into the program and got a position teaching in Chicago public schools. How many years were you at CPS? I was at CPS for four years. The commitment for Teach for America is two years, but I, some people go into it as a short-term thing and I was going into it as a career change. I wanted to, um, I wanted to teach. So I ended up staying longer than the two years, but then as you know, as things turned out, I made another pivot. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So uh, I was wondering, though, while you were there, it seemed like you you were really kind of involved in other kind of leadership uh, positions, uh, things like a one goal program director. And then uh, you even uh, became an adjunct instructor at uh, Dominican. I was wondering how you how you were able to kind of uh, keep the ball rolling with kind of ascending in that kind of uh, leadership position in in education. Yeah, I really enjoyed my time at CPS. Um, so I was a Spanish teacher. And, you know, as most high schoolers know, it is usually some kind of language is usually a requirement. So some of my students loved attending Spanish class and some not so much. So I also wanted to teach a course that that they elected to be in. And um, a Teach for America alum had started an organization called One Goal, and it's basically a college prep program. So um, one of my years at the high school that I taught at, I was able to recruit about 25 sophomores during their sophomore year and build a cohort that followed them through their junior and senior year. And so we were able to focus in on test prep, um, on looking at different colleges that fit their academic interests, um, and and really just go a little bit deeper um, than perhaps maybe just a guidance counselor. So that's what my commitment to one goal was. And that was a really awesome time. I was able to really form some amazing relationships with those particular 25 students. Do you remember what was some of like your favorite like breakthrough stories uh, it, while you were uh, involved with that program? Well, I did end up taking them to a college conference at Illinois Wesleyan. And so that was just a really amazing day um, to kind of take them around my campus, speak around my college experience and get them really excited for college. And I also really enjoyed when they ended up getting those acceptance letters at the end of or throughout that their senior years. It was just their senior year. It was a really culmination of just all the hard work that they had done um, throughout the program. So that was that was amazing to see. Uh, then how did you work your way with to be an adjunct instructor at Dominican? What did you do there? Yeah, so Dominican had the relationship with Teach for America. Um, and so I had gone through courses there while I was getting my master's in teaching while I was in my first year of teaching. And so by the time I ended up being an adjunct, it was a couple years 
think it was my fourth year teaching, um, I was able to teach new Teach for America teachers and kind of a seminar course and talk to them about classroom management and work them through building a unit plan. So it was a really neat, almost mentoring position where you were able to teach people who had gone through, they were going through the same experience that you had gone through. You started off telling us that you you went to uh, Wesleyan to uh, to to go be pre med, and then you had another pivot in store uh, for this, and so you you kind of left teaching to then go back into nursing, not to go back into nursing to pursue nursing. I was I was wondering um, what was the source of that pivot. A lot of things. Um, so when I had gone into pre med, I think. I think a lot of us have a misunderstanding of the medical field or we only have the understanding of whatever our experience is. And when I had, when I was growing up, I was relatively healthy. I hadn't really been in the hospital or anything like that. So my perception of what a provider was, what a nurse was, was just what my experience had been. And it was pretty minimal. Um, And so when I got into pre-med in college, I was kind of looking at the trajectory and thinking how long it would be until (laughs) I, I ended up working with patients. And the timeline was a little daunting for me. That's the same reasons that I didn't want to go to law school. I didn't want to spend all this time in school and not with people. Um, and for me at the time, nursing wasn't really a consideration because I don't really think I understood what a nurse was. So I made, you know, the pivot into teaching. My problem is I have far too many interests. So, um, that's what I had done at the time. So when I was teaching in Chicago public schools, I was seeing, you know, a fair amount of health disparities. I was thinking about the best way to teach. And I think, you know, kudos to you. I think high school teachers are amazing. Um, But some of my best experiences as a student have been immersive, and that's not always possible in the high school setting. Um, And so I kind of knew early on that I wanted to teach higher ed in some way, Um, just the way that I was able to learn Spanish. And then I had learned, my cousin at the time was going through nursing school, and I learned that she had clinical instructors who were physically in the hospital with her, teaching her how to be a nurse with patients. And to me, that just made me so excited. I think those are some of the reasons why I love doing those college conferences and all these things that you you can do a little bit when you're in a high school setting, but I I just wanted more of that. So that kind of was the multifaceted reason for the pivot. Tell me about your coursework then, because that's still like, that's such a brave leap, you know, to leave what you know as a very accomplished teacher at that point and then go into, you're still an educator, but it is in a different kind of medium or discipline, I should say, altogether. So what was the, what was it like to then go into that type of coursework? So first, you know, if there are many programs in order to go into nursing or even change careers, um, kind of what I was saying, even into go into teaching, there are there are programs to do that. Um, in order to apply to those, though, you have to do a lot of prereqs. So I spent a fair amount of years teaching all day, and then I would go to class for about three hours a night. And again, dating myself, there weren't too many online options, especially for like lab courses and, and things like that. So I would teach all day, and then I would go to like a three-hour lab course uh, two to three times a night. Um, so I did that 
for in order to qualify to apply to these programs. So then after my fourth year of teaching in CPS, I was admitted into Rush and their master's um, program for for non-nursing majors, so people who didn't study nursing in undergrad. And I was admitted there, and it's a two-year program, so it's six semesters. Um, and that coursework was very intense, and it involved a lot of clinical time in the hospital, and it involved a lot of, obviously, a science base. Um, but it also involved a lot of learning about public health. Nursing is really multifaceted, and that was one of the reasons that, that drew me to it. I knew that once I got a nursing degree, I could do so many different things and, and maybe wouldn't have to get a different degree every time I wanted to try something new. In your, in your, in your training and, and schooling for this, how much did you feel that your soft skills and people skills, had, had, having been an educator prior to that, kind of helps you with that demeanor that you need to be a, a nurse? Like how much does, has that kind of given you uh, a type of confidence to be in situations where people are in pain, they're scared, mm-hmm. and you have to kind of, you know, kind of fend off all of the various different high emotions and all that? How, how has being a teacher um, and, and having those type of experiences maybe been a benefit to you? Yeah, it's a huge benefit. A lot of people who, if we're just like kind of thinking about stereotypically, go into the sciences, they sometimes a lot of their degrees are very focused just on science. And um, and a lot of their experiences are just on science. And if you think about science and it's its procedure of, you know, gathering data, like making hypothesis, gathering data, looking to see how that hypothesis rolls out in some kind of experiment. And for us, it's assessments and things like that. And then you try an intervention and then you assess whether the intervention works. And a lot of people are very clear cut. But when you add people to the mix, when you add patients or even when you add students, people are are not always predictable and people don't follow always logically what you think, especially when they're in very um, stressful situations, as you mentioned. So I think that that really carried over well. Um, In teaching, as you know, you have to be prepared for about a million things to happen at once. It looks, it might look easy from the outside looking in, but it's not. You make a whole plan and then you try to execute that plan, but you're executing that plan to usually 30 individuals and how that goes. It depends. Um, and th- it's the same thing with teaching or with uh, nursing. You you try to do an intervention, but you have no idea either how the patient's going to respond emotionally or even physiologically. And so you have to be willing to adapt. You have to be flexible. You have to critically think. You have to have plan A, B, C, D in your mind. Um, so I think that really helped me be prepared for that career um, as opposed to maybe some of my other colleagues who came in just from an undergrad experience and hadn't really had practice in adapting um, when situations changed to to a plan where wasn't what you had originally planned, if that makes sense. Yeah, oh, it makes makes complete sense. Now, when you're going through the nursing program, do you, do you have a, a specialty? Like, are you, do you kind of get uh, like, do you become cardiothoracic or emergency or how, like, do you, do you begin to form a specialty as a nurse? No, not really. I'm um, each term. So especially at somewhere like Rush or these alternative programs, um, the idea is, you know, I think in undergrad, you have a little bit more time to explore and I'm not sure undergrad in nursing, but undergrad in general, where you would have your 
your general education requirements, things like that, where you, you get to explore in these programs, you know, truth be told, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty expensive, things like that. So the curriculum's pretty set as far as your trajectory and what you're doing. So you get a taste of everything, but you don't necessarily get to choose, um, you know, to do more of one thing. The only time is at the very end when you get an immersion. And I think the best way to look at that is, is like student teaching or something, a practicum, um, that you are fully doing. So you are put on a specific unit, at least at Rush. And that doesn't mean though that you have to like work in that area. So that's kind of the beauty of nursing is you you can be hired to different units. So when I graduated, I was hired to a, a transplant unit, even though my main focus, like one of the jobs I had as a student nurse was on a rehab unit where people were rehabilitating typically from strokes or things like that. Um, and then my immersion placement at the very end was actually on a hematology oncology floor with individuals who had leukemia and lymphoma. So neither of those were directly related to where I ended up getting my job, but they really informed the type of job that I wanted to have. And the skills that I learned at both of those places they were transferable to where I ended up teaching. And now, sure, there will be nuances to, especially when you work at a large institution like Rush, the units are specific, but many people when they graduate nursing will work on a gen med floor and they see all types of disease processes. And so that general education is usually pretty, pretty helpful for them to kind of build that knowledge base. Once you get your nursing degree and you, you continue to work at Rush? Yes, I did. Uh-huh. And I, for several years, about three years, and then I ended up working. So I kind of had a lot of uh, several jobs at the same time. So I worked full time on the floor for a while. Then I started working part time on the floor. The floor is kind of what we call the unit or the hospital. And then I got a job working um, as a clinical instructor. So really one of my goals that I wanted to do, I got eight students who were going through the same program that I had gone through and we would go to a different floor. We would go to different units and they would be assigned a patient and I would walk them through how to care for that patient um, and really allow them to practice in a safe environment where they had, the patient had a nurse assigned to them and then the student also had an educator assigned to them. So I was able to do that. And then I also had a job working at a clinical research center at UIC. And so they ended up doing, they were a center that implemented about 60 different studies that were happening. So that was a whole new learning environment that I had. What were some of the studies that you were involved in while you were there? UIC um, did a lot of beta cell transplants for individuals with type 1 diabetes. And that has been really interesting and at the forefront of, of medicine. And so we would end up giving medications to individuals to try to prolong that transplant if it looked like they were rejecting it. There were a lot of sickle cell patients that would come there and we would, you know, try different medications to make sure that their, their pain was appropriate. We would do different walking tests and oxygenation tests for people who had different pulmonary issues. So that was kind of the cool thing about that job. It wasn't just one study. There are so many happening that you kind of got this taste of, of so many different ways that medicine's advancing. That was cool. Uh, you, uh, just the, the range of life experiences that you're describing here are just, it's just incredible. 
you continue to pursue your education a little bit more. Can you tell us what made you want to keep pushing uh, farther along? Yeah, so it's kind of ironic because I made a full circle back to that (laughs) timeline of pre-med. I had been aware of nurse practitioners later once I got, once I became a nurse. But again, to be honest with you in high school and even in college, I don't think I knew what a nurse practitioner was. Um, I just was not aware of all the different roles that are involved in healthcare. Again, I think it's whatever we see and whatever we experience and whether personally or maybe on TV. And so if it's not highlighted so much on TV, maybe we don't even know it exists. So um, I started to learn about what a nurse practitioner was and I started to work with them as well during clinical, during my first education as a nurse. And then also once I became a nurse, we would work with them on the units. And I started to learn that that was exactly the type of role that I made, I was envisioning when I was studying pre-med that had to do with such a patient-centric role, uh, being with patients a lot, but then also managing their, their care. So after a couple of years, I decided to enroll into the nurse practitioner degree at Rush, and there it is, a clinical doctorate. So that's taken me, I just finished that, that it took me a little over three years to finish because I was going part-time so that I could maintain working during that time. What's the, is there, what's the final like assessment, you know, when you, you earn your PhD, congratulations, by the way, like, is it, is it a project or like, do you defend a thesis? Is there research involved? Like what's, what's the, or, or is it just kind of um, making your way through coursework? Um, what's the, what's the, the final stage uh, to, to earn that PhD in your program? Yeah. So the, the PhDs have, you know, a dissertation and basically a dissertation has to be generalizable. That's what we say about um, research that contributes like to the body of science. And so it's this whole, is this whole criteria. Um, so for the clinical doctorates, you don't have to do it like you, it's not the same. One of the issues um, with medicine in general, and we kind of saw it with COVID, um, is that science, the way it's done, and it's it's good because we try to do it thoroughly and safely, it takes a long time to become translatable to, um, to actual practice. So a different kind of intermediate step there um, is a project that we had to do for our clinical doctorate, which is it's sort of, it's a, we call it a, a project. It's not a dissertation, but we can publish it and all those things. And it's really to look at some kind of clinical practice and, and trying to improve it. And so we go through that same process that I was talking about before. We do an assessment. So we look at a certain environment. We say, you know, what's lacking here. We develop, we look at the, the evidence that exists and we say, okay, what, what can we apply here that's not following the evidence of science? And then we implement that and then we evaluate it. And that takes about two years, what we end up doing. And it isn't, so it doesn't have to be, we call it like statistically significant, all those things, um, which you would definitely have to have if you had, you know, if you were looking at a drug to make sure a drug worked or even the vaccine, what they're doing now, that all, you know, would kind of be part of a PhD. What we're doing is more like a project-based real time to try to get 
how we can translate science into clinical practice and look to see if it's working. So it's a little complicated, but that's what our culminating project is. Do you find yourself wanting to be on a particular floor or a part of the hospital more like, I, I really like being in emergency or I'm more partial to rehab? Um, like, you know, if you find yourself kind of like nudging towards a certain part uh, of that, which, which one do you prefer most? So with the um, nurse practitioner, there are several different types of um, programs. And what I did was primary care. So I'm a family nurse practitioner. So I won't be, if I work in the hospital, it won't be for acute care. That's what we call when, you know, patients are, that's what I did. The kind of bedside nursing I did was acute care. Kind of what you think of, you go to the hospital, you're admitted, you, what you see on TV, right? Primary care is when you go to the doctor and you know, or I should say your provider and, and you see them in the office setting. Um, so that's more what I'll be doing. And the reason why I really liked and was drawn towards that was because of my time in the acute care setting. Um, a lot of the things that I saw, you know, were preventable. Um, some weren't, they weren't, but a lot of them were. And so trying to get as many, you know, primary care providers as we can out there to prevent acute illness that really, you know, if you see a, a stroke or things like that, which are very common, they can be, they can be devastating. And to, as much as we can, if we can try to keep like blood pressure low, if we could try to keep cholesterol low in that primary care setting years and years and years before that happens, you know, to prevent that. So that's where I'm more drawn now. It's not as, you know, action intense as the TV, <laughs> but, but after seeing it on the other side, that's where I was drawn. That's why I went to family uh, nurse practitioner. Yeah, I, I I would just ask this question recently as as well, which is I, I love that it's you know it's kind of like an old cliche, but I think it's so applicable in in so many areas of life, but definitely within medicine is that uh, is that expression an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I was wondering from your kind of professional observation, like what is the most uh, kind of most important kind of prevention uh, health hack, you know, so to speak, that you've seen that has the most force magnifying um, uh, effect. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with, uh, that phrase. Um, and the funny part is you don't always see it, you know, if you're doing the prevention, you're not always seeing what you're preventing. So really just trusting that, that that's the case, but you know, really it's, it's healthy lifestyle. And I think working in education and working in various places, it's easier said than done. Um, and I even know that within COVID and you know, I try to go work out X amount of times and life just happens. But as much as you can, like eating healthy, staying active, um, ad- adhering to practices that address your mental health as well, trying to seek out therapy if that's needed, especially after this year of a lot of trauma. That was what my project was on actually is just the presence of trauma and how it really causes like chronic inflammation and chronic stress that leads to a lot of times higher poor health outcomes later decades in life. So again, it's it's nothing. <laughs> there's no magic pill. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's all the things that you would hear typically, but but they do work. Um, and research after research, you know, we, we spend our time looking at these meds, but the more we can prevent it, you know, the better. But. 
Yeah, I know, wish there was. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, so I, I was wondering, you know, you have um, you have such a unique lens, uh, two different frames of how you can uh, do your work. You know, one you are, as a as as someone in the medical profession, when you see a problem, you have a various different types of flow chart of being able to like understand how to. Uh, confront an issue. Uh, but then you're also a teacher, right? Like that's also part of like how you um, perceive things and kind of also kind of carve up pr- uh, problems as you as you go about them. Uh, I was wondering if maybe you could walk me through like uh, a type of um, scenario where as a, as a when you were kind of observing something that a, uh, a patient was going through, how do you go through the heuristic or kind of um, uh, questioning to kind of get at like how to identify what was wrong with them. Like what kind of like, how does a, how does a nurse think type of scenario? Yeah, that's a great question because that's exactly what I teach <laughs> is how a nurse thinks. Um, you know, there's a lot of obviously a base for pathophysiology, pharmacology, all that, but it's really a matter of critical thinking. Um, the first thing is just data assessment. So we have um, a whole acronym and thing when we make nursing care plans. And the first the first thing is just to get the data, assess the situation. What are the vital signs? What is your physical exam telling you? What it, what is the patient stating that's happening? Do they have pain? Are they saying that they have shortness of breath? You know, we, signs versus symptoms and the, the symptoms are what, what they say they have. Um, and the signs are what you can objectively see and measure, such as like so how much someone's urinating or whatever it is. So really gathering the data to see like what's normal and what's not normal. And then the next step would be to prioritize. So there might be several things <laughs> that are wrong and that are abnormal, but we're dealing with people who who might die. So you need to prioritize them and and obviously prioritize the thing that is most critical or prioritize the thing that that it, you can't move past to get to the other things. So um, then we call that like our nursing diagnosis. And then we really think about the interventions and we look at the science of what would we what would we do and we do like assess care teach. So like what are the key assessments that have to do with that thing? So say I thought someone was, you know, having a stroke or whatever, I'd want to make sure that I got their blood pressure. I'd want to make see if they were slurring their speech, something like that. And then I would do the care piece, which would be the, usually like the intervention. So if someone's blood pressure was high, we would give them a blood pressure medication or, you know, have them sit or calm down or whatever it is. And then teach, which would be to reinforce just whatever we were doing to make sure the patient understood the, um, to make sure the patient understood what we were doing and why we were doing it. And then we would evaluate, did that did it work? You know, did the blood pressure come down? Is the situation worse? Is the situation better? Is the situation the same? So it's really like, it is scientific thinking. Um, and you really want to go through the process and you don't want to make any assumptions because you just don't know what's happening. One of the like kind of horrible stories that we relay didn't happen to me personally, but you know, there was a a patient that came in and they thought they were having like an asthma attack and they were treating it like an asthma attack. And they just assumed because the the patient had asthma, but in reality, the patient had a peanut allergy that they didn't know about. And so they weren't treating the correct thing because they just made an assumption in the, in the beginning part where they're supposed to assess. So that is our thinking process. And that's what I try to walk students through. Um, 
but and have them demonstrate that they're that they're thinking in that way. I mean, that's so critical, you know, that data would lead to the appropriate conclusion because time is that resource that you really don't have when you have to, you know, deal with an emergency situation. That's just so true. Okay, so then the the kind of follow-up question for that is, you know, you're a teacher and I'm wondering, like, I'm always looking for (laughs) teaching advice. I'm humble enough to know that I don't know all the answers. I was wondering, like, what's some of your, your, like, how, how do you help uh, a, a student that is kind of like maybe struggling to kind of either take the leap or kind of see things clearly where you want them to arrive at the particular uh, destination? Like, what are some of your tips to to kind of coach uh, a student to where you want them to be? Yeah, well, you taught me, so I don't know if I can really give advice. <laughs> but um, what I mean, in that is kind of the neat part about doing it, um, you know, with patients, uh, that they have this kind of example in front of them. So you do have to have some sort of base knowledge. So if I'm like assessing a student and I'm seeing that there are gaps in base knowledge, I will, you know, advise them to reinforce looking at a certain pathophysiology, looking things up, really using their resources. You don't have to memorize everything. It's not all about recall. It's about being able to know where to look. So that's the the first thing. Identify your resources and really know what, you know, where to look for the information that you that you need. And then if it's a trouble piecing it together, I just have them walk through that process cuz I do find that sometimes there's some kind of gap within that that delineation of what we had just talked about. So either that they're assuming and not fully assessing, or they're not really looking at the, they're not prioritizing the diagnosis appropriately. So really figuring out where in the process they're, they're going awry. And then um, having them walk through their, walk through it. Um, And what we do when we create these care plans, which I really enjoy and have kind of created rubrics that have been implemented at Rush is have them tie each thing that they're saying to a rationale so that we can really see, it's like metacognition, really see what their thinking is and why. Because when they go on a floor and they think our unit and they see a nurse doing all these things, they're like, they didn't write a care plan. They're not doing that, but they're doing it in their mind. Because when you're an expert, you don't have to have it all out. Just like Spanish, right? If you are going to if you're going to learn the language, if you were native and you, it was your language, you just speak it. Um, but if you're not, sometimes there's way more cognition that goes into it. Um, and so it's, it's just the same idea, really laying out that cognition proce- uh, process to see where the the gaps are. And so if it's, if it's a thinking thing or if it's just a foundational knowledge piece that where a gap needs to be filled. Uh, that is what a great answer. I, and I, I, I wish... I had more intuition the way that you just described that when I was a younger teacher, which is to uh, lean into that kind of reflective metacognition piece where students really do need to kind of reflect upon their own justification of their learning. It really is such a key part. And really, it's it's really key for all learning, self-growth and, and or academic or, and anything. So, wow, what a great, what a great uh, response there. I love that. So, you know, Amanda, you've had, you've been so generous with your time. This has been, I've learned a ton today. And, you know, I was wondering if you could leave uh, current Wildcats uh, with some tips for success. Um, I think 
one of the tips just from my trajectory of going doing and trying different things is just that is to try different things and I think especially as like technology has progressed as even like COVID has hit and is going to change the face of a lot of industries I think when I was in high school I obsessed over and even in college what am I going to be when I grow up like what's the title what what is the career the end game and I never could name that (laughs) even now I don't know if I could name that um but I went in the general direction of my interests and of my strengths. So even if my interest was to help people, that didn't really pan out for me through law because it I I wasn't around people enough. Um, so while it was an interest, I don't think it went as well with some of my, you know, how it, it plays out realistically. Um, so that, that would be my advice first would be to just try a lot of things. Don't be afraid to fail. And then, and then merge the things together. I think that my career, I, I would have never thought that it would have looked like this. So less obsessing over kind of an end goal and more just exploring and trial and error, being a little more relaxed. And as a type A personality, <laughs> I'm still trying to practice that. <laughs> So great. Well, Amanda, thank you so much. This was uh, an absolute joy uh, to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You can follow We Go Places on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Just search We Go Vox. That's We Go, V-O-X. Or search on Facebook for We Go Places Podcast. 